Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. Is being addicted to our phones and technology now a health issue? Returning to the show this week is fellow podcaster, co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine, and the New York Times best-selling author, Mr. Chris Kresser, is here to help us figure it all out. For a man so freakishly knowledgeable about health, Chris's non-dogmatic, balanced approach to wellness can be refreshing. But before we get to this show, here's the review of the week. Array says, I'm struggling with finding a wardrobe that fits me because I've lost 40 pounds in two months following the wild diet. This is insane. Wow. Jeez. Great job giving the wild diet a shot. 40 pounds in two months is insane. Um, And I'm glad you're so excited about it. It it sounds like your uh, mindset is in the right place as well. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, Now, if you're out there, if you've dropped fat, improved your health, following the wild diet, or if you've just listened to the show, learned a few things, I'd love to hear about it. You can drop me a line on social media. You can leave a review for this show. Uh, You can always check out ablejames.com or fatburningman.com. Get in touch there. Uh, But I always love hearing from you all. Now, over the past year and change, (laughs) you may have heard, Allison and I have been secretly recording over 400 360 or VR music videos Uh, as well as adventure tours in VR and 360. And we also created our new health company, Wild Superfoods, which uh, can now basically allow us to be our own sponsor on this show so we can create our content for you folks without outside influence, without the man controlling (laughs) what we say or what we don't say. And uh, basically, we can simplify things a lot, makes it a lot easier uh, to have a small family business because we're not in this for the money. We're in this for uh, the freedom and for the message. And we really want uh, you folks to be as healthy as possible as well. So we're excited uh, for you to check out Wild Superfoods if you live here in the U.S. If you're uh, living abroad, hopefully we'll be able to figure out a solution to get some Wild Superfoods to you as well down the road. But we're not there quite yet. But uh, being our own sponsor allows our message to stay as clear, honest, uh, and uncompromised as possible. You know, having worked as a consultant in my early days to pay off my college loans, I saw the inside of the beast and I saw a little bit too much. Uh, And to the the extent we can, we find uh, a lot of satisfaction in, in being independent or being, you know, indie creators. Uh, and just a small family business. So every purchase from Wild Superfoods or from uh, our new website, Wild30, our educational materials at Fat Burning Man as well, all of those purchases help us create more content for you folks. So we couldn't do it without you. Uh, We're glad to be back on the grid, and we really appreciate your support. So uh, for the next year, you can watch a new three- uh, 360 or VR video at ablejames.com. That's A-B-E-L james.com. Check out a few videos, leave a comment on social media or the websites. Let me know what you think. Um, for the music videos, a lot of you are asking, um, I make up 
most of them on the spot. And I'm doing something called live looping, which allows you to record uh, multiple levels of vocals or multiple tracks of vocals, as well as multiple instruments. And I play a whole, whole bunch at this point. So layering those together and then manipulating them with some of the technological musical gadgets I have creates really silly and satirical songs. So uh, if you ever were taking me completely seriously, I hope this helps uh, you to take me a little bit less seriously because uh, I am just a student of health and a student of life. We all are. I do not have all the answers. I'm not a guru. And uh, hopefully putting out some of these adventures out in nature and some of these uh, music videos as well as more of this health content will allow you to uh, get to know us a little bit better. So anyway, head on over to ablejames.com to check all of that out. And I always love hearing from you. All right, on to this show with Mr. Chris Kresser. We're chatting about why chronic diseases have skyrocketed, what the ancestral diet is and why it's important, the role health coaches play in the new healthcare model, and tons, tons more, especially about technology and being addicted to our phones and how to raise kids in this world of technology these days. Anyway, let's go hang out with Chris. All right, welcome back, folks. This is Abel, and today we're here with Mr. Chris Kresser. Chris is the CEO of Kresser Institute, the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine, and a New York Times best-selling author. Chris recently launched the Kresser Institute, an organization dedicated to reinventing healthcare and reversing chronic disease by training healthcare practitioners in functional and evolutionary medicine. Chris, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Abel, always a pleasure to be with you. We've been uh, hanging out in similar circles for a while now. I remember reading your blog back in the day, really appreciating the unique spin that you brought to certain subjects that other people weren't talking about it. And um, I'm trying to remember the theme from your podcast way back then. What was the name of it? Well, the blog was The Healthy Skeptic. That's right, The Healthy Skeptic. And so, yeah, and that was the podcast, too. Um, so, that yeah, you go way back. That was uh, probably like back 2008, maybe 2010, 11, something like that. I remember like seeing the paleo template in, show up in a blog comment right. conversation, I think it was, and everyone's like, yes, the paleo template. <laughs> I miss those days sometimes, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's, things have changed quite a bit, haven't they? It's amazing. Well, why don't we start right there? What What is wrong these days? What's wrong mm -hmm. with conventional medicine, conventional wisdom, the way things are? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the long and the short of it is that um, we're suffering from the biggest epidemic of chronic disease that humans have ever faced. And it's, it's threatening to bankrupt our government. It's just destroy our quality of life and, um, you know, sh shorten our lifespan and, and threaten the health of future generations. So, um, that's not small. That's, that's not. a, that's a big deal. It's really an existential crisis or threat. In fact, the Defense Department of Defense is looking at chronic disease that, that way, so, you know, similarly to the way it looks at other threats like nuclear war or, um, you know, uh, sh shortages of, of basic needs and requirements. And because, uh, you know, one in two Americans now has a chronic disease and one in four have multiple chronic diseases and those numbers are increasing every year. So if you just follow the trajectory, eventually... Mm -hmm. Everybody could have a chronic disease, and um, that's not where we want to end up. So, but we we uh, really need to take action. 
it, it's hard to measure this, but sometimes it feels like things are getting worse instead of better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because certainly some things are much better. Um, you know, I think if you ask most people whether they prefer to live today or 200 years ago, they would say today for yeah. a number of reasons, you know, we, sure. um, that aren't necessarily related to health, but, mm -hmm. but certainly, you know, uh, rates, our lifespan has increased, uh, because largely because of our ability to deal with the acute challenges that humans that killed us for most of our history, like mm -hmm. uh, infections, you know, typhoid, tuberculosis, pneumonia, you know, sepsis, a uh, blood infection from a severe injury. Like these are things that historically, you know, killed us in large numbers. And it's the reason why average life expectancy was like in the forties or fifties. Right. Um, for, for a long time. So, so that's definitely improved and that's welcome for sure. The trouble is, um, those acute challenges are no longer the major causes of death, of death. Um, you know, in 1900, top three causes of death were all infectious diseases, typhoid, mm -hmm. tuberculosis, and pneumonia. Whereas today, seven out of 10 of the top causes of death are chronic disease. So, um, I think I would say in some ways, uh, it's, it's, def it's gotten better, but in other ways, it's going definitely in the wrong direction. Uh, and they're different challenges than the ones that we faced before, which is, I think, in part why we're having it took us so long to recognize, number mm -hmm. one, and why we're being so slow to turn it around. Well, right, because back in the day, a few centuries ago, if, if you started to get an infection in your leg, it's somewhat out of your control if you don't have the medicine to treat it or if you don't have the means to treat it. Whereas today, it's much more of a almost behavioral or psychological issue where we have these diseases of abundance really where mm -hmm. a lot of them manifest because people have been eating or living in the wrong way or, or in an unhelpful way for, for a long period of time. Yeah. I would say behavioral and environmental for sure. That's, mm -hmm. that's what's driving the chronic disease epidemic, but it's, you know, our, our medical system was set up at a time where the major challenges were still acute emergency mm -hmm. situations. So like, again, back in 1900, the main reasons that people went to a doctor were, uh, let's say they broke a bone on working in the factory, or they, they were having an appendicitis or a gallbladder attack, or they had an infection like pneumonia. So they would go to the doctor and the treatment was relatively simple. It didn't work necessarily all the time, but it yeah. would be, you know, they would set the bone in a cast or they would, they would remove the gallbladder or once antibiotics were developed, they would prescribe an antibiotic for the infection. It was just, you know, one doctor, one treatment, and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, today it's very different. Again, you know, people are going to their doctor, they, because they have irritable bowel syndrome, you know, and they've got, and they're not sleeping well and they're gaining weight and maybe they have high blood sugar and they're pre-diabetic and, um, they're starting to have kidney problems. And none of these are life-threatening emergencies, uh, right away. Uh, they, and they require a really different approach, but our system is still really set up to deal with life-threatening emergencies, you know, and it's pretty good at that. If you look at healthcare on the spectrum of like perfect health over here and death over here, our system excels at intervening at the far 
end of the spectrum, right. like closer to death. You know, if you, you get hit by a, a truck, uh, you go to the hospital and they can do some pretty amazing stuff to save your life. Uh, we're starting to be able to restore sight to, to the blind. Um, you know, we there's some pretty amazing new drugs that are targeting cancer in, in a different way that have a lot of promise. And so, you know, when you're really sick or you have an emergency or an acute problem, Conventional medicine is, is actually pretty good at, at, at dealing with that. What it's hopelessly bad at is uh, for preventing disease in the first place, mm -hmm. promoting health, and also addressing the root cause of these, of these behavioral and lifestyle diseases, mm -hmm. um, you know, which because conventional medicine is mostly focused on using drugs to suppress symptoms, it's not really oriented toward finding the root cause of a problem, you know, diet, lifestyle, behavior. And, and those things are the root cause of virtually all chronic diseases. So that's the fundamental problem that we have. Right. We're uh, very well trained in extremely targeted care. But when it comes to thinking about people as people, not, not so good. Yeah, I mean, it's you look at the way medicine is set up. We got specialists for every different part of the body, you know. Yeah, very. But they don't very know advanced. how the body works, <laughs> right? Or they don't know <laughs> how it's all connected. I mean, yeah. and the primary care provider is supposed to play that role of like the quarterback, you know, that kind of manages all of the, the the different specialists and is the central hub resource for the patient who can coordinate all the different aspects of care. But um, that might work all right if the patients were spending more than 10 minutes um, in an appointment with the primary care provider. But that is actually the average amount of time that's spent in an appointment is 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, you know, that's barely enough time to say hello and goodbye. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, if a patient has multiple chronic diseases, like go back to that person I was talking about with IBS and high blood sugar and insomnia, um, you know, to, to even get a, a sense of what's going on to ask them about their diet, their lifestyle, you know, behavior changes that they can make. That's never, ever going to happen in a 10 minute appointment. Yeah. Uh, and so the, 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 the best that can be done in that situation is to essentially write a prescription, you know, for helping provide the patient with some relief for, for those symptoms. And that's it. And this is not doctor's fault. I mean, doctors are as much victims of this system as patients. And sure. I know so, so many doctors that, are well aware of this and don't want to work that way and find that it's a, a soul crushing experience, you know, to have 2,500 patients and see patients, you know, 40 hours a week, just in and out all day long and not to be able to really connect with them and, and practice medicine in the way that they know they, they should be doing. So it's really a systemic problem that requires a systemic solution. And it's not really healing either. Um, no. there's an interesting disconnect because, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my mom was going to school to become a, a nurse practitioner, and eventually she uh, she was working in and out of hospitals. She started her own practice for a while. It didn't work out for reasons we could get into that are kind of interesting, especially in today's society. Um, but she explained the same thing, working in the ER or even working in uh, clinics with doctors. You're up against the clock, and I think anyone who's ever been to the doctor has experienced this. Um Yet in your book, it seems like you have some some great solutions that you outline. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's uh, more of more of something where you have an army of coaches who are well informed who do have the time 
to spend teaching people about these preventative uh, methods uh, to avoid disease or just promote health. So could you explain a little bit about how that might work? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, my book was really intended as much as anything else as like a shot across the bow. Sure. <laughs> like, you know, this is a, an issue that is on the level, you know, like I said before, it's an existential threat to mm-hmm. not only to us as individuals, but to, to our, us as a, the fabric of our society. I mean, if our ba- government is bankrupted mm-hmm. um, by healthcare expenses, we don't, we no longer function as the United States of America. I yeah. mean, this, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what I laid out there is, is hopefully part of the, the solution. Um, and really, <clears throat> what you were referring to is what I call the collaborative practice model. So, uh, and that's one of the, the three solutions to this problem that I advocate for in the book. And uh, as I said, you know, appointment times are just too short with doctors. So, so that's one problem. The second problem is if we acknowledge that chronic disease is primarily driven by diet, lifestyle, and behavior, uh, which it is. Le- less than 15% of disease is caused by genetic uh, issue, ge- wow. you know, genetic issues. So mm-hmm. we could say 85% of the risk of disease comes down to the choices that we make on yeah. a daily basis. That's a great way to think um, about it, yeah. So, um, so then that leads to the next question. Okay, well, even if doctors did have enough time, would they be the best uh, people to work with patients on diet, lifestyle, and behavior change? The answer is no, because right. they don't have the training. Most doctors only get one uh, class in, in medical school on nutrition, and it's based on uh, textbooks that were written you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and also doctors, you know, should they even do that? I mean, doctors still have to be available to do doctor-y kind of stuff, right? <laughs> right. You know, to, 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 if you need a colonoscopy or you need to have a, a you know, skin tumor removed or something like that, we, we need people with that advanced level of training. So um, what I'm suggesting is creating much more of a collaborative approach to care where you have everyone doing uh, exactly what it is that they are trained to do. So... Uh, and then better utilizing nutritionists, health coaches, personal trainers, and other what I call allied providers, you know, uh, on the care team who can actually make a meaningful impact in helping people to change their diet, behavior, and lifestyle. Because we know now, without a doubt, that that is the way that we can make the biggest impact on um, the healthcare epidemic. So let, let me use an example. Let's say you go in to the doctor. Um, maybe this is five years from now and your doctor does some comprehensive blood testing, not just like three markers, but like a full blood panel to, Mm -hmm. to, because they know that if, if they catch stuff before, you know, if they do that, they're going to be more likely to catch things before they turn into full on problems. Right. Right. So then they, 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 they do some blood sugar markers and they say, Oh, you know, your, your blood sugar is getting a little high. It's still in the normal range, but it's towards the upper end of the range. And what we know about this is if we don't intervene, it will progress. And the further it progresses along that spectrum, the more difficult it will be to reverse. So uh, uh, th- that's the good news. We're catching it now. And, mm-hmm. and if we take these uh, few simple steps, we're going to be able to uh, nip this in the bud and, and you won't ever have to develop type 2 diabetes. Um, and then they say... And the good news is too, we've, we've seen the, we, we know that just telling you to eat well and exercise more is not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. And so we have a health coach on staff 
who is an expert at helping people to change their behavior and adopt these a new diet plan. And she's going to, you know, come to your house and clean out your pantry and go shopping with you and show you what foods to buy. And she's going to design meal plans and recipes. And then you're going to have a, a weekly check-in call with her um, every week until you feel like you're really solid and you've got this, and you know, you've got this down. And we're also going to refer you to a local gym we have a partnership with and you're going to uh, personal trainers there is going to uh, help you set up a physical activity program and get you walking more and sitting less and then eventually do some strength training and you know higher intensity stuff because we know that that's going to make you you know a, a, a big difference and and the, the good news is your insurance company is going to pay for all of this because they have come to realize that if they spend a little bit of money up front helping patients change their behavior and preventing these diseases, they can sort save an enormous amount of money over the long term. Now, that might sound kind of like, a, a, to, to you and I, well, that's just, that sounds like, why are, why are we not doing this right. already? Yeah. I mean, like to anybody listening too, like why, that's, that's how it should be. And it is how it should be. And there's actually nothing stopping it from being uh, how it is. It's, it's not even an expense problem because mm -hmm. as I uh, you know, as I indicated in the book, it costs about 15 grand a year to care for a patient with type 2 diabetes. So if you spend $1,000 even up front on health coaching and personal training for that patient, you prevent them from getting type 2 diabetes in the first place, you could potentially be saving a half million dollars over the course of their lifetime. Right. So this is not an economic problem. It's just a question of awareness and um, will, basically, to make this change. Yeah, I was talking to our, our mutual friend, Dr. Mike, Dr. Mark Hyman yesterday, and yeah. I think he mentioned that it was you spend twenty four hundred dollars on someone's food for a few months and then you you end up saving well over one hundred thousand dollars in diseases that yeah. manifest later. And that's something that, uh, you know, we, we haven't really uh, been educated about so much, but I think we can all inherently understand because we see it all around us, right? Like it's quite obvious, especially as, um, as time goes on, you see a lot of problems, uh, happening to certain people who are making certain decisions, um, whether it's, it's the way that they exercise or the way that they eat. Um, you see other people who are living more like elves, probably like us, right? <laughs> Eating clean, trying to get out there and move, going down to Mexico and surfing sometimes, um, where it seems like you have, you have vitality still, right? Like yeah. when you look around and you see people who are losing it, it's concerning, especially when we start to accept that as normal, which we have, I think, more and more as the years go by. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of the problem is is environmental is, is uh, uh, you know, the ancestral argument, which a lot of your listeners are familiar with, basically says, look, we we've got a kind of operating system that was designed for a, a completely different environment than yeah. the one we're living in. You know, it was designed for living outdoors in an environment of relative food scarcity uh, where you had not exposure to the natural rhythms of light and dark, where you were, you had to be physically active throughout the day or you would die <laughs> because right. no one was, you know, there was no buffet that you could just to turn up to and, and be fed. You had to go hunt and gather your food. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there was social connection, uh, because people, humans lived in a tribal arrangement. Um, and that, that's all just hardwired into our DNA and our biology. Now you fast forward to today, 
every single aspect of our lifestyle is different. Everything that I just mentioned has been basically turned upside down. You know, we live in an environment of food abundance where you can walk, you know, 7-Eleven and Costco and Walmart and Amazon Fresh and two hour. I mean, yeah. you, you really can eat, you know, there certainly still is poverty in, in the United States and people who don't have enough to eat. So I don't mean to diminish that. Sure. But for most people living in this, in our industrialized world, the problem is eating too much, not, not enough. And, um, you know, we're not sleeping enough. We're spending long periods of time sitting and looking at screens. We're living in isolated, alienated social environments. And so the, the, the key point I want to make is that it's really important to understand that our body, that there are a lot of ways that our body sets us up for failure in a, in this environment. So mm -hmm. just, you know, a couple examples would be, uh, we're, we're hardwired to seek out highly rewarding calorie dense food because that's what would have, that would have helped us survive in a natural environment characterized by food scarcity. The mm -hmm. people that were most successful in finding that, that calorie dense food and eating the most of it would have actually survived to pass their genes on. Um, and you know, others are, you know, our, our kind of dopamine reward system is we're, uh, programmed to be kind of constantly, um, scanning the environment for distractions mm -hmm. because that, you know, if we saw something in our peripheral vision that could have been a predator, you know, we would have been more alert and aware and we would have been able to escape that and we would have passed our genes down. So what happens with that in a world where, we are flooded with distractions all the time. We have phones that are constantly notifying, you know, giving us notifications and we've got, um, you know, email and all this stuff that, well, that, that tendency towards distractibility actually really then works against us in the, in the modern environment. And so, you know, the reason I think this ancestral view is so powerful is it provides us a framework for understanding our experience and, and then, changing, making changes to our environment in a way that will set us up for success rather than failure. Yeah. So how do you see people, uh, making that transition? Cause especially when it comes to phones, technology and, and how much closer it's getting to even to our physical bodies. I mean, like people are, are being raised, generations are being raised, um, on these devices. And if you follow that trend line, where does that go? You know, what do we, how do you, how do you see that entering in all <laughs> that, of this? That, uh, to be honest, that, that's the thing that keeps as a parent myself, right. uh, almost seven year old daughter who, uh, we completely restrict her technology use, by, do you? By, uh, you know, she has virtually no technology use. No, um, she gets to watch, uh, uh about, uh, 40 minutes of video one time a week. And that's, that's, a, that's, that's the full extent of her wow. screen use. And, the reason for that is because I'm very well aware of the research on technology addiction, especially with kids, but right. also with adults. And I mean, this keeps me up at night, frankly, more than a lot of the other health stuff that, that we talk about yeah. because, um, a phone is like, uh, an ideal, ideally addictive and distracting device. It, mm -hmm. it triggers virtually all of our, um, hardwired vulnerabilities really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think we're going to have to be very intentional 
about the way that we change our relationship with technology. I mean, so just personally, I can tell you some of the things that I've done and that I recommend to my, great. Yeah. Uh, my patients. Um, one is that I, uh, turned off all notifications on my phone, except for must. calls, voice, you know, you know mm-hmm. voicemail and text messages. In my case, I'm old enough that a lot of my contemporaries don't really text message very often. <laughs> so, so I, I know that if I get a text, it's probably one that I need to see, sure. you know, it's from my wife or a friend. So, but younger people, I think could even, you know, consider turning off text messages because a lot of them are just like yeah. emojis and Hey, how you doing? You know, like, um, and I have my calendar notifications still turned on because I schedule a lot of things in my calendar. And I, I sometimes like, you know, I like to be reminded if an event's coming up or something, mm-hmm. I have a call with a patient. Um, I never take my phone into my bedroom. Um, I don't sleep anywhere near my phone. Yeah. In our house, we have phone-free rooms and, and tech-free rooms and zones oh, cool. where we, we never have any iPads, computers, technology at all. Like the, the dinner table. The living room? What? The dinner table is definitely in the, you know, our dining area. We, we don't allow any phones or devices at, at the table and then the living room as well. Mm Um, I, every Sunday we have a family, uh, uh, screen free day, digital detox. So, um, we, no, we, my wife and I put all of our devices away and we, um, don't interact with devices at all during on Sundays. Um, we, I do peri- peri- periodical digital detoxes where I, you know, if we, when we go on vacation, I completely ch- unplug and don't use any devices and I don't interact with work at all. Good. I even have now started setting up Gmail to delete my emails while I'm gone. Really? Um, which is <laughs> I want to learn the, that trick. <laughs> the, the most liberating step I've ever taken, um, because you know a lot of people don't go on vacation because they're afraid of the huge amount of email they're going to face when they yeah. go back. So I set up an autoresponder that just says, "Hey, I'm 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 you know surfing somewhere. I'm taking a break, and uh, life's too short to come back to a huge pile of emails. So if you need something while I'm gone, here's my assistant's email." Otherwise, if it's important, please just email me, you know, when you get back because right. I'm deleting all emails uh, while I'm gone. And I started doing that uh, last year and it, it's transformative. I mean, it's it's amazing because you can just yeah. be gone. You come back to a, a completely empty inbox and just start uh, fresh. And, you know, the people who really need to reach you, they they email me the next mm-hmm. week. They said and, and actually many of them said wow, that was really refreshing. I, I loved reading that autoresponder and I'm going to start doing the same thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, those are some simple steps that, that you can take that can make a huge difference yeah. in your life. Um, there's also an app called Moment for iOS that monitors your usage and gives you tips for reducing your usage and even has a built-in course um, called mm-hmm. from uh, Bored and Brilliant. Uh, that you can that you can take that helps you know kind of give you some of the context for this. I have an app uh, app on my computer called Timeout, mm-hmm. uh, which every you can program the intervals of time, but every now and then it pops up and takes over your screen and reminds you to take a break. And so I do shorter breaks, you know, every 15 minutes, and then every 90 minutes I do like a 10 or 15 minute break where I'll actually step away from the computer, go outside sit in the sun, do some push-ups or pull-ups or, you know, 
some burpees or, or whatever, um, you know, go play with my daughter, uh, for 15 minutes. So, you know, it requires effort, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, this is, this is the challenge that we face is that most people are first of all, not even aware of how they're being affected by all these technologies. And second of all, even manipulated. Exactly. Very intentionally, by the way. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother topic, but, um, and, and, but, and second of all, don't really have the resources, you know, and support to, to put all these changes into action or don't even know how to do them. Like I think of my dad, he, you know, was one of the last people I know to get an iPhone. He is not tech savvy. So, you know, he just gets it and like whatever that he, you know, it's by default set up to notify and interrupt him all the time. Yeah. And then whenever you install a new app, he just hits, okay, okay, okay. He doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know, really know what to do. And so now yeah. he's, it's come to the point where he's just constantly interrupted all throughout the day without even really intentionally choosing for that to happen. Right. And I had a conversation with him the other day. I was like, dad, you, you realize this is what's happening. Like if, if I came to you and I said, Hey, how would it be if I just followed you around uh, all day and every, every couple minutes, just like claps in front of your face and like, you know, <laughs> distracted you from what you were doing or like, you know, tapped you on the shoulder relentlessly until you looked at me. I mean, you'd punch me in the face in about five <laughs> minutes and tell me to get out of here. But that's essentially what the phone's doing to us all day. It really is. But it's making it pleasurable almost like you think that it is because it's it's almost like Pavlov's dog. You get this sound that grabs your attention. You kind of like it because you probably picked it out and it's one of your favorites. And so it goes ding and then, oh, it's a friend or it's a smiling face or it's a something. And, uh, you know, I went to school for some of the psychological stuff. So if I kept going with it, I know who they hired to yeah. like trick people brain, into being affected by this stuff. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's so rampant. And like you said, it's, um, it's not just the kids. It's also our parents' generation. Every time I go and visit my folks, I literally have to take like almost all of their devices especially apple devices i go into the settings and i have to go through all of the new notifications that have popped up like usually without their permission yeah exactly and uh man it's a lot of work and we shouldn't have to do that but it's it's really important to know that that's what we're up against yeah and this is hard this is again just brain chemistry this is all Mm -hmm. dopamine mediated um it goes back to that distractive you know that that hardwired uh uh, fact that we're there were wired for distraction that that helped us survive in a natural environment um and when you do something like open an email or check your instagram feed or your face facebook feed uh, studies have shown that you get the same kind of dopamine mm-hmm. burst that you do um w- w- when you before you're going to engage in any other addictive behavior and uh what's really particularly insidious about it is um it's not one of the, the key principles that determines whether you'll get hooked or addicted to something is called intermittent reinforcement. So it's, it's, if you open an email and every time it was a really good one, it wouldn't be the same. It's, mm-hmm. it's that, it's that you, you know, you're not sure what you're going to get when you open the email or when you open your face camp, Facebook feed and every mm-hmm. now and then you'll get something that, that, you know, makes you feel good. And so that intermittent reward is what makes it so compelling. And if, you know, the, the best example of this aside outside of tech, you know, phone technology is slot machines. Yes. Slot machines are the same exact principles and they are known to be the most addictive devices on the planet. So essentially the phone is like carrying a slot machine around in your pocket. 
Yeah. Jeez. That's that's a great way to put it in just a few words. Um, and it's I think the problem is it's not really getting better. And it's you you really have to keep watching it like literally every day like a hawk yeah. to make sure that technology isn't invading your life more and more, which is interesting because there's this assumption that that technology is, is going to save us from so many problems that we have right now. Yet the more social media accounts that you stack onto all the responsibilities that we already have and the more emails and the more like you were explaining, it's not it doesn't seem like it's solving that many problems. No, or it's creating I mean, as it, many as it's solving. Yeah, right? it, exactly. For sure. And, and I, I do talk about this a lot and a, a lot more now because I, I actually, I think it's a, it's a health problem. I mean, yes, it's a, it is it's now. threatening, it's, it's threatening our health in the same ways that, you know, a poor diet, not getting enough physical activity, uh, et cetera does. And, um, you know, I, I actually, uh, you know, our health coach training program just started in June and, um, for that program, I put together two hours of, of material on technology addiction and oh, really? how to how to identify it uh, mm-hmm. first of all in yourself and how to work with it and address it. And then, of course, that um, once you've been able to do that, then to help to, to help your clients do that, because if someone is working as a health coach and they're not thinking about or talking about technology addiction with their um, clients, they're going to be missing yeah, uh, a whole a whole piece of the of the puzzle, and and in some cases it's the main piece because mm-hmm. they won't be able to sleep, to exercise, to manage their stress, and even possibly to eat well if they're so if they're spending so much time engaged with technology, or so much time being interrupted by technology, right? Because it's it's that very thing. You can promise yourself that you're gonna use it less. But if it keeps going off and it keeps going off, then whatever you are doing, you can't keep doing it that way. Yeah. And if you're sleeping with your phone in your room, which mm-hmm. I think something like 75% of people do and really? you're not, yeah, no. it's crazy. The numbers are just nuts. Um, and you're not turning off notifications. Like a mm-hmm. lot of people, especially younger people are, are waking up all through the night to respond to text messages, you know, or, or Instagram posts or whatever. And, um, that's just scary, you know, given what we know about the importance of, of sleep and the effects of sleep deprivation. So I, I do think this is a big public health issue. I think one one thing that's really important for uh, listeners to take away from this is, um, Chris, you've, you've literally built this into your habits now. You disconnect. Um, and like what you do is being connected to a bunch of people. Same with us. We um, went without proper Internet for eight plus months um, relatively recently, we're just kind of coming back on the grid. We, uh, went away from social media. Now we're coming back, we're releasing new content and stuff like that. But even though this is kind of like what we do to pay the bills, it was still okay. Like it's okay to take a break. It's okay. People won't hate you or not be friends with you anymore. If you don't post for a few days, for a few weeks, or even a few months, or I, I hadn't posted until this week, the Instagram in one and a half years, because I read an article that said the more time you spend on social media, literally the more depressed you get. And, uh, and we also know the other side of that. If you get 30 minutes of exercise, it's basically the equivalent of a Zoloft where mm-hmm. we have these, these things that we need to do as humans. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a little rant about what you folks can do to disconnect or at least build it into your habits a little bit more because you have to play more self-defense than you used to. 
Absolutely. That's a very good point. This, it's, this really is about self-defense and uh, you're fighting against very difficult to uh, change. You know, you're not going to change the heart, the impulses. Those are mm -hmm. part of our biology. You know, they're part of what make us human. And so the more you recognize that this is a rigged game and you're the chump, essentially, right. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I don't mean each any individual person who's listening to this, but um, these companies are hiring what they call brain hackers, mm -hmm. or these are people who understand the neuroscience of behavior and addiction, and they have specifically designed these products to be as addictive as possible. And there, I, there are lots of, of anecdotes and stories that I talk about in my the, the presentation that I that I design in my health coach training program. But some, you know, some examples would be, um, you know, there's there's an uh, there are algorithms in Instagram that can, can detect when like someone hasn't used it for a while, or maybe they might be feeling a little low because their, their activity has dropped and they will serve them certain content at a certain time to re-engage them and get them, you know, basically interacting with the platform again. It's, it's really kind of freaky and chilling and scary. And, and these, um, you know, these, these brain scientists are getting recruited and they're being paid enormous amounts of money and their job is to basically make these products as addictive as possible. And so I found that just telling people that actually helps because most, yeah, most people resent being manipulated. Like mm -hmm. most, you know, I don't like to feel like I'm being manipulated. Right. I, I know most people don't either. And when they understand that it's, that they're actually essentially the product, right. uh, you know, so, so like Facebook and their, uh, their data, their per Instagram. Like yeah. You, you're not their customer. Yeah. That's a really important thing to understand. You're not their customer. Their customer are the companies that pay advertising, uh, to them based on how much you use the platform. So you are essentially the product of these social media companies. And the more you use social media, the more money you're putting in the pockets of all of these, uh, not only the, the, the social media companies themselves, but also all of the, the, their, their customers, the people who advertise on social media. So, mm -hmm. um, your attention is, is more specifically is the product that they're all competing for. And so they, that's why they have staff of people, including neuroscientists, whose job it is to get you to spend as much attention as possible so you can generate as much revenue for them as possible. Ugh. Well, let, let's ask about... <laughs> it's really... Yeah, it's important to understand, though. You know, it's it's a big revelation, I think, when people really understand that. Well, especially just because it's everywhere now, and it's more and more places as time goes on. But anyway, let's... Uh, how, does, uh, how does your daughter handle the lack of technology, whether it's in the rooms or for certain periods of time, how did she react? Well, she never knew anything different. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's the thing. Um, this is interesting. If you look at, uh, she goes to a Waldorf school. So oh, cool. uh, for those, for those that aren't familiar with Waldorf, um, it, it's a, a, a certain philosophy of education, but one of the principles of Waldorf uh, edu education in schools is to restrict technology use for kids. They, they believe that it's, it's inappropriate for kids at that age to be engaging a lot with technology. It interferes with the development of their imagination, their social skills, and their, their fine motor development. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, so if you go to a Waldorf school, you actually have to sign a contract that says that you're, you know, following the guidelines for restricting wow. technology use. And, you know, it's not like they're enforcing it and like banging down your door at home, but it's, it's kind of socially enforced. Like mm -hmm. if you were to have a play date with another Waldorf kid and you, and then you just sit your kid and, and there, and, and that kid down in front of the TV and, and then that kid goes home and goes, busted. guess what, guess what, mom, <laughs> guess what I did, you know, then it, yeah, it, it comes back. So, yeah. um, one of the interesting things I found in my research on that presentation was that, um, a very high percentage of technology, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, CEOs and founders send their kids to Waldorf school. Hmm. So, that's a little messed up, actually. Yep, that's pretty Think messed about up. it. Um, so, so you have people in the Silicon Valley, like uh, this. Uh, he was the, the chief editor of Wired, um, and you have a whole bunch of other people who send their kids to the Silicon Valley um, Waldorf School, where they're not allowed to use technology. They restrict their technology use at home. So Bill Gates and Steve Jobs both famously restricted their kids' uh, use of technology. Bill Gates didn't let his daughter get a phone until she was 13. Hmm. Um, Steve Jobs didn't let his kids use iPads or really you know, anything. Yeah, I mean, and now they're in all the schools. Very, very, yeah, very typical for technology executives to limit their kids' technology use. So that tells us something, right? That really they, does. more than anything else, are aware of the, the, the dangers of these devices. And, you know, look, Sylvie, our, my, our daughter, is just like any other kid. You know, if you show her a video, she'll enjoy it and yeah. want, want more. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, you just we just have to put firm limits on it, and she understands that. And, um you know, it just means that she gets into a lot of other stuff. She paints, she uh, does right now. She's really into finger knitting and weaving and she goes and jumps on the trampoline that we have outside. And, you know, she, she's a voracious read. She loves to be read to and read books. And, you know, so she does what we all did before there were screens um, in, intervening in our lives. Bleeping and blooping at us all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're almost out of time. What did we miss, Chris? Um, there's, I mean, you're doing so many things and your new book is excellent. Why don't we talk a little bit more about uh, the content of the book itself? Sure. So, uh, you know, we, we started talking about how important it was, you know, to uh, move to a more collaborative practice model mm -hmm. uh, where, where we're not just relying on doctors to manage disease. We actually have a full care team who can help people to change their diet, behavior, and lifestyle. So that was actually one of the three three-part solution that I suggest in the book. Um, the second one was a shift to an ancestral diet and lifestyle. And we've mm -hmm. already covered that a little bit, you know, just really understanding that we need to get back to this, the, 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 the way of living that is more in alignment with our genes and our biology. So uh, it's not to say that we need to sleep out in the backyard with a loincloth and, you know, that really kind of emulate our paleo ancestors. That's right. just silly. But, certain, you know, very basic things like um, wearing or, you know, orange glasses at night to filter out the blue light and not using electronic devices right before you sleep and, you know, using a standing desk in addition to a sitting desk and, you know, all, all little changes that we can make to kind of mimic more of our natural environment mm -hmm. and, and behavior. And then the third thing, which we haven't really touched on, but I imagine you did, yes, uh, in your interview with Mark, is yeah. uh, embracing functional medicine mm -hmm. approach to care. And, uh, you know, 
this means addressing the root cause of problems rather than just trying to slap band-aids on them. And um, the analogy I often like to use is if you have a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, um, you could take some painkillers and it would help, but you should probably better to just dump out, your sh- uh, take off your shoe and dump out the rock. And, and that's really what, what functional medicine <clears throat> has to offer. And, uh, I think th- it's a key component of the solution because, um, as I mentioned before with diabetes example, it's enormously expensive to manage these diseases once they've occurred and we'll never have enough money, Mm -hmm. whether you're talking about whether the government's paying, individuals are paying or corporations or employers are paying, there will never be enough money to manage a population where everyone has chronic disease. That's, that's just a non-starter deal breaker. So the only hope we have is to actually reverse these conditions rather than just try to manage them. And, you know, the best way of doing that is the functional medicine approach. Which is, you know, I don't want to exhaust (laughs) the metaphor, but like that, if you take that little pebble out at the beginning, it's not, that difficult, right? And it's not, uh, hopefully the diseases haven't manifest too much at that point. But even if they have, it's like, if you keep going after that little pebble, then it's going to keep shrinking. Right? Absolutely. Like, um, yeah, you don't want yeah. it to go in the opposite direction. So it's important that, you know, it's never too late to focus on functional medicine or the whole body. It's never too late. And, and even when the disease can't be completely reversed, as I think you were alluding to, mm-hmm. it can usually be improved significantly. And, you know, we have patients, for example, who, you know, we've they've gone from taking 10 or 15 medications to one, you know, wow. and may, maybe they need still need to take the one because they progress so far along the disease spectrum that that, you know, unfortunately, that part of it was irreversible and we couldn't get them, but they, you know, they feel 90% better and they're taking one medication instead of 10 or 15 and feeling suicidal because they're so sick and depressed. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a huge win, right? It's like, it it doesn't always have to be black or white. Um, and there's, there's just so much that, that can be done. Now, Now that's a much bigger change, you know, shifting our, our conventional, everything we've been talking about so far could be relatively e- easily incorporated and in, even into our existing system. Yeah. Um, you know, changing to a, a primarily functional medicine model is a much bigger undertaking. Uh, and it's one that I think we need to do and will do mm-hmm. and is actually already starting to happen. Um, that before our recording, I was re- uh, recording a show for my own podcast and I had um, Pat Charmel, who's the CEO of a, hos- of a hospital in Connecticut, and uh, a couple of other people talking about so, um, how, really es- essentially like how they're starting to shift to a functional medicine approach wow. in, a, in, in the conventional world. I mean, this is a huh. CEO of a hospital. Which is a hospital is a place where you would expect them to be thinking at the very far end of that spectrum, you know, like this is acute care and even end of life in many cases. Um, But what they have realized is that that model is not sustainable. And um, in order to really make a difference, they're going to have to start um, like touching people a lot earlier in the cycle. And they're um, figuring out ways to go out into the local community and, and, and partner with insurance companies and, and other providers to start delivering preventative care. They're even thinking about the social determinants of health, like, you know, they, they're they relatively low income area. So, you know, some people don't even have uh 
the, the they don't have enough money to buy healthy food or they're living in a in a uh, in a moldy house and they have asthma because the indoor air quality is poor mm-hmm. or they um, they don't have access to fresh food because they live in a in a in a neighborhood where there are only liquor stores on the corner and so they're even starting to work with you know social agencies and think about things from mm-hmm. a very holistic perspective and this is you know as pat um, admitted, like, you know, at first, a lot of this stuff gets motivated um, just economically because the numbers are such that, you know, our, our healthcare system is facing bankruptcy and, and everybody knows it. People yeah. in the conventional world know it. And so everyone's trying to find a way to survive, you know, to survive, like mm-hmm. whatever their role is, an insurance company or a provider or an employer. And uh, they're starting to come to the same conclusion. They're looking at things and saying, we can't just wait till people are really sick. We have to start thinking about preventative care. And so, um, you know, we've got a long ways to go still in that transition, um, but you're seeing pockets of it already, even like in the depths of the traditional conventional medical system, which is pretty exciting. And that's just one of the reasons your work is so important and we very much appreciate it, Chris. Uh, What's the best place for people to find you? Uh, chriscresser.com is my main website. And then for those who are interested in training in functional medicine and or as a health coach, that's cresserinstitute.com. Right on. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, well, the pleasure is mine. I always enjoy our chats. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fat Burning Man. If you liked it, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, the podcast app, or wherever else you might be listening to or watching this show. Got a second? Please leave me a quick review on iTunes. I always love hearing from you. And if you think someone else might like and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or with a family member. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at FatBurnMan and Facebook by typing in Abel James or FatBurningMan. Drop me a line anytime. Did you know that I've recorded over 150 episodes of Fat Burning Man, winning four awards in independent media and hitting number one in more than eight countries? And here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode for free. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. I'll give you a second to type it in, fatburningman.com. And you'll get all the show notes and video and audio versions for all the past episodes of Fat Burning Man. Better yet, enter your best email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide to start burning fat right now and a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now, enter your best email to get your free fat burning download straight to your inbox and make sure that you never miss a show again. This is Abel James signing off. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.